are you impatient? Ah, confession time at the very beginning here. Are you impatient? It's possible that you are impatient because you have way too many choices. I was at the grocery store the other day, and, and I think there were like nine options for mayonnaise. I mean, nine options for mayonnaise. I mean, bless their heart. I mean, just, there just needs to be one, Dukes, right? I mean, you can remove all the others. You know, there's, there's no reason. The, uh, the cereal aisle is a, a dangerous place of choice, too. You know, you, you walk in with intentions of getting that great, you know, honey bunches of wild berry, oat, bran, grape nut, puff, toasted cereal. Man, all excited. And then, you know, you're on the way out the door, and you look in the cart, and you got honey bunches of white chocolate peanut butter swirled cinnamon French toast squares. You know, you totally chose something completely different. It's not just food choices that we have in life. We're surrounded with a lot of choices. Almost everywhere we go, there's choices between houses and hammocks and cars and crock pots and tools and TVs. We have a lot of choices between mascara and mailboxes, between prescriptions and even pet sweaters. I mean, we have lots and lots and lots of choices. There's a lot of choices out there. And we know that all choices are not bad, right? I mean, it's good to have some choice in life, but, but choice can be dangerous, and too much choice can do some things to us. If we have too many choices, we may choose to not choose, Right? We, we may get paralyzed because there's way too many options, and we may choose to do nothing. Or, as we've said, in the middle of our choices, we may become impatient. Impatience is not just with food and stuff, though. It's also with people. About seven years ago, Mark Brooks, writing as a consultant for uh, online dating companies, published the results of a survey And the title of the survey was this, How Has Internet Dating Changed Society? Now, I'm going to share just a few of the conclusions of this survey, but let me give this disclaimer first. All online dating is not sin and bad and evil, okay? I mean, I know some folks, uh, some believers who met online, and they are married and honoring and, and serving the Lord. But the results of this survey are at the very least a little intriguing. So a few of the conclusions, here's one of them. Above all, internet dating has helped people of all ages realize that there's no need to settle for a mediocre relationship. Mediocre relationship. Here's the thing. Every moment in life is not supposed to be Christmas morning, okay? That's kind of not how life works. And there will be moments in life that will be mediocre. And there will be difficult moments in relationships, And it is simply not very human to think that you can just swipe or click those mediocre relationships away. So it might teach us that our relationships don't have to be mediocre, but that is not human and that is not rational. Here's another conclusion. The market is hugely more efficient. People expect to, and this will be increasingly the case over time, People expect to access people anywhere, anytime, based on complex search requests. Okay, this was from seven years ago, so this, the, compl- the complexity of search requests you know, has increased. 
And he goes on to say this. Such a feeling of access affects our pursuit of love. The whole world versus, say, the city we live in will increasingly feel like the market for our partner or our pickiness will probably increase. In other words, man, I've got all kinds of options all over the world to go find the perfect mate, the, the perfect date, the perfect match. So I'm just going to keep moving through until I can access wherever I get what I'm looking for the most. And how about this conclusion from the survey? Internet dating has made people more disposable. The idea is that if you don't find Cinderella or you don't find Prince Charming, you know, first and foremost then all of a sudden you can dispose mentally of other human beings with just a click or just a swipe. The idea is that we have the idea of what we're looking for, and if someone doesn't meet our standard, then we can kind of just casually dispose of them. At least the mentality is there in this system. The massive number of choices that we have in life are more than just with stuff and people and things. And the massive number of choices in our life, they do create impatience with stuff and people and things. But all of that seems to indicate that there's something deeper underneath our impatience and our willing to dispose of things. There's something underneath all of those choices that's really driving that mentality. And what is that that's underneath? Well, let's see if we can find out this morning. Psalm 37, verse 34. King David says this, Wait for the Lord. Far too often our choices make God more disposable. Yeah, we'll keep going to church, we'll, we'll keep attending church, but, but when it comes to actually pursuing God, thinking about God, having God as part of our decision-making and our thoughts, we kind of just dispose of Him. We don't pray that often, we don't read our Bible that often, we don't engage in Christian conversation with other believers, we just kind of don't think about God much at all. And then when that happens, all of a sudden, all of our theology, at least the things we say as Christians, it, it sounds like we're getting all our th- theology from, from talk radio or from TV pundits. And we're not thinking about the truth of God. And we start arguing and complaining more with business owners about the prices and the brands and, and more choices and more choices and more choices. We start talking like there are no politicians and there's no pastors and there's no teachers. There's no one in any position of authority anywhere that can be trusted unless they do exactly what we want them to do or if they believe exactly what we want them to believe. When we begin to dispose of God, we sound like people that demand democracy. We want more freedom and more democracy in our country and and at the country store and at the country buffet. We want more choices and more democracy and more freedom. But what we sound like is many dictators demanding our way. That's what happens when we dispose of God, when we swipe Him away, even casually in our lives. Our impatience grows, our aggravation grows, and all the while we're kind of disposing of sound doctrine. We're disposing of these great truths about God. And so therefore, when we hear something from David that says, wait on the Lord, we don't make a connection 
because we're not thinking about waiting for the Lord because we're barely walking with the Lord. David lived about 60 years at the time that he wrote this. He had experienced in his life a lot of things. Let's say this, David didn't always perfectly wait on the Lord. We know that. We see that in his bio. But he knew that waiting on the Lord and waiting for the Lord, he he knew that it was an important part of his life if he was going to survive and thrive. He knew that it could not be replaced. So when we look at our lives, if, if your family or your friends or your job or your education or your boat or your car or your favorite team or, or whatever is your favorite thing in life, if that thing, if that person, if those people are more important than having a relationship with the one true God, then please understand you are actually functioning outside of how your heart and mind and soul were designed to live. You're actually functioning apart from how you were created to function. We were created to function in such a way that we would know the living God and that we would be in relationship with him. Waiting for the Lord does not necessarily mean that if you wait long enough, you'll get what you want or that he'll do something for you, although he will, and that is part of it. No, the picture of of waiting for the Lord is more like you are waiting for Him. You're waiting for Him. You're waiting on Him. You're waiting in Him. You're waiting with Him. You're you're engaged in a relationship with the one true God. So what does that mean and what does that look like and how do we get there? Well, let's think back to impatience, first of all. Impatience, by definition, means that in a moment or maybe by the attitude of your life, these are the words that are seen. Irritable, restless, frustrated, agitated, nervous, edgy, and jittery. Have any of us circled those wagons this week? (laughs) You don't have to show your hands. It's all right. Now, we, we know those things, right? We know what those look like. And so the opposite of those things, the opposite of impatience would be patience. And by definition, patience means that in a moment or by the attitude of your life, these are the words that would most often reflect you. Calm composed, even-tempered, self-restrained, kind, considerate, and understanding. Now, have we even seen those wagons this week? <laughs> you know, those, those are a little more difficult, right? A little, little harder to get around. Maybe one way of thinking of what it means to wait for the Lord is that we kind of need to, to install a, a CPI system in our heart and our mind, all right? Now, CPI means calibrating patience and impatience, okay? Not the security system, but the, the letters work. So a CPI system would, would do something for us because it would have this system of alerts. So in any moment of life or with the attitude of our life, we would have these alerts that would be going off. Wait, am I being irritable? Am I being restless? Am I being frustrated? Am I being agitated? Am I being nervous? Am I being edgy and jittery? If so, then your CPI system is going to go off. It's going to let you know that you're not waiting for the Lord, that, that impatience is owning you, that you're kind of worshiping impatience in a way. Now listen, we're all going to have moments where we're going to do that, okay? So cut yourself some slack. We're, we're going to have our times and our moments where we are going to be in that. But it's important for us to grab hold of what David is saying here. Because what David is saying here is that amongst all the choices in life, there is a choice to not be impatient. There is a choice to wait for the Lord. 
And that CPI alarm can, can trigger us and it can get us to start praying and start moving toward shifting gears. And that's an exciting moment. I mean, it's not just something that would encourage us. It would be exciting when we, in that moment, see that the alarm is going from red to green, and we are starting to make that shift. We are starting to think more about God. We're, we're starting to dwell more on who He is. We're starting to engage in that relationship. We feel our minds, because of the truth of God, starting to switch, and, and we start feeling a little more calm and a little more composed, a little more even-tempered and self-reliant. We feel less jittery and less edgy, and we feel more kind and more considerate and more understanding. Again, we're not talking about perfection here. We're really just kind of talking about gospel. We're talking about what the gospel does to us when we begin to preach the gospel to ourselves. I mean, I've experienced this. Some of you experienced it. You, you know that moment when there's some Bible truth that pops up into your head. There's some scripture that pops into your head in a moment. There's, there's some believer that texts you something or, or says something to you or emails you or calls you and, and it's encouraging. Or, or maybe you're driving down the road and you look out the window and you're watching the sunset on a Friday night out by the lake. And all of a sudden, the gears start to shift. And you're moving away from the edgy, jittery, impatient person. And you're beginning to say, oh, a mighty fortress is my God, a bulwark never failing Okay, okay, I'm going to shift. I'm going to shift. See, what's happening in that moment is that we're becoming overwhelmed. We're becoming overwhelmed with what it means to be saved by Jesus. We're starting to realize that we're not alone, that we're not by ourselves. We're starting to remember that God is for us and not against us. We're beginning to remember that we don't have to be restless, that we don't have to be patient, that we can make the choice to wait for the Lord. And as we wait for the Lord, what happens is we go, oh yeah, I can turn my eyes upon Jesus. I can look into his full face because Jesus, with joy, endured the cross and all of its shame so that I might be rescued. And that cross, that's where our hope is found. That cross, that is holy ground. And that cross, we continue to go back and bow down and bow down and bow down over and over again because we're relying on the guarantee from heaven that our Redeemer is faithful and true. In fact, there's never a moment that He is not faithful and true. So we wait for the Lord because He is faithful and He is true. Some people would say, well, that's just noble religious psychology. That's just a spoonful of spiritual sugar to help the medicine of life go down. Maybe. Other people just say this, you know, you're just talking semantics, waiting for the Lord. I mean, what does that really mean? That's, that's just words. Somebody said this, having patience is just being good at hiding impatience. <laughs> Love this one, though. Somebody else said, patience is what you have when there are too many witnesses. Yes, that's very, very, very true. Yeah. See, we can take this whole idea of waiting for the Lord and go, ah, we're just talking about patience and impatience. It's, it's no big deal. But, but it's more than that. This is not just noble psychology. 
The prophet Isaiah was praying to God and wrote his prayer down. This is part of what he prayed about 2,800 years ago. Isaiah 64, verse 1 and 2. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil. Why? Verse 2. To make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things, which we did not expect, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. A lot of trembling and quaking, right? I mean, mountains trembling, mountains quaking, the rolling of thunder at the presence of God. That doesn't sound like noble psychology. See, there's more to this than just semantics. Isaiah goes on, verse 4. For from days of old, they have not heard or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God besides you. And then he prays this. Who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. Wow. God acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. This is extremely cool, right? That means if we pray like Isaiah prayed, if we, if we pray and we wait on the Lord, that means that our health is going to get better. That means our finances are going to get better. That means our spouse is going to get better. That means our kids are going to get better, right? Maybe. That'd be great, right? I mean, that'd be super. Yes, that very well could happen. Or there could be a spot on the x-ray. Or the insurance company could deny the claim. Or our spouse just continues to be aggravating or angry or apathetic. Or our kids get more rebellious against us and more rebellious against God. That could happen too. See, when we talk about praying and waiting for the Lord, that doesn't mean if you just wait long enough, you'll get what you want. But that's not the picture. But the picture we have throughout the Bible is that we are believing in and trusting in and relying on and clinging to Jesus in such a way that the gospel keeps whispering to our souls the truth that no power of hell and no scheme of man and no disease to our body can ever eternally pluck us from the hands of God. See, he is a mighty fortress. He is the protector. But his protection is for infinity, not just for Tuesday, not just for Friday night. So how do we wait for the Lord? How do, how do we wait for this God that is working on our behalf? Well, let's see if we can just keep it real simple. Maybe the simplest way we can say it is that we wait and we pray. We wait and we pray. Psalm 106, verse 13 says this, They quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. They wanted what they wanted when they wanted it, and they didn't want to wait. God had proven himself over and over and over again to the people of Israel. But there's this one thing, and it didn't happen, so they were like, ah, we're not going to wait on him anymore. We're, we're just going to 
go do our own thing. Because, I mean, God didn't come through this time, so undoubtedly he can't be trusted. We're never like that with people, are we? (laughs) I mean, we never treat our, our spouse or our kids or our friends or our politicians or our pastors or our policemen or our firemen or teachers or, or anybody. We don't, we don't ever make anybody a one-hit wonder in life, right? I mean, we always give people multiple fumbles before we lose it, right? I mean, we never hold anything over someone's head for just one fumble, do we? We never lose it when our spouse or our kids or our friends or our politicians or our pastors fumble one time and really not even fumble over something immoral, just a fumble over something we didn't like. We always give tons of grace every time, right? Hopefully you can hear a bit of sarcasm behind my voice because we don't. We, we tend to be one-and-done people at times. But aren't you glad that God isn't like that with us? And aren't you glad that really most people are not like that with you? I mean, I am. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad that Josie and Pat Welsh stuck it out with me, you know, because, I mean, I fumbled a lot, you know. My parents stuck it out with me. You know, my family stuck it out with me. My friends have stuck it out with me. You know, it's good for us to remember that the one true God of the universe is is patient. He waits. He's gracious. He's merciful. And so because he waits, sometimes we need to learn to wait on him. Sometimes the way we wait for the Lord is, is we pray. And we wait for things to get clearer. We wait really to find out more of who God is and what God is calling us to do. Well, how do we know what God is calling us to do? I've shared these thoughts with you before from Philip Jensen and Tony Payne. They write, we need to explore God's character and the way he achieves his plans before we can tackle the nitty-gritty issues we are all so interested in. Did you catch that? We need to know God before we try to find the answers for all of the questions that we're chasing after. And then they say this, if we understand God, what he's like, what motivates him, and what his plans are, we will be well on the way to understanding his guidance. In other words, knowing him is what God is calling us to. It's, it's first and most. He is calling us to know him. And so sometimes we pray and we wait, and while we are waiting, we spend a lot of time trying to soak up the character and the nature of God. So we wait and we pray. And sometimes we wait and we keep our horse ready. Proverbs chapter 21 verse 31 says this, The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. The Lord is going to act. The Lord is going to bring his measure of victory into the situation. But we have been called as believers to keep our horse ready, right? We've been called to keep our horse prepared. We're supposed to be training and and preparing and building up our heart, so to speak, for the moment of battle and for the moment of victory. We are always supposed to be engaged, keeping the horse ready, keeping our hearts ready. Courtney Doctor is a wife, a mom, and a grandmom. She's also a women's ministry leader. She had a horse named Carson when she was growing up, and this is what she said about the horse. As long as she was moving, she was calm, obedient, and a joy. But when she had to wait, she was a nightmare. 
lunch conversation there. Sounds like some of us though, right? Man, as long as things are moving, as long as things are going the way I want them to go, as long as nothing interrupts my schedule, as long as the doctor gives me good news, as long as the teacher gives me good news, as long as there's good news with the weather, as long as it's good, I'm good. But when things stall, when the storm stalls on the coast, when the storm in our life stalls at the hospital or at home or at work or at school, wherever we are, when things stall, we might become a nightmare to deal with. We, in that moment, kind of quit remembering that our God is a mighty fortress. We don't like to wait But the picture that we get really throughout the Bible is that we're always supposed to be ready. We're waiting and we're praying and we're acting. And the way we're acting is we keep our bodies ready to move and we keep our minds ready to think and we keep our hearts ready to love and we keep our hands ready to serve so that if it's a disaster of a storm or it's just a disaster emotionally in our home, we are ready. We're waiting, but we're actively waiting. We are staying prepared all the time all the time. And why should we wait and why should we act? On another day, David wrote these words, Psalm 56, verse 9, this I know that God is for me. The reason we wait, the reason we pray, the reason we act is because we know that being a Christian is not defined by our conduct first and most. Now, being a Christian is defined first and most by the conduct of God, by the character of God. And what is the conduct and the character of God like? Well, it is an acting conduct. It is an acting character. And his actions were that he so loved you that he sent Jesus to rescue you. So we wait for him. And we pray and we act Because he has accomplished much on our behalf through his son and his atoning work on the cross and from the grave. Those actions mean that God is working for us all the time. See, Jesus was not a one-hit wonder. His salvation, the power of the gospel, it is always working, always working, always working. It never stops. See, what we're doing when we're waiting for the Lord is we're waiting for the one who is for us. They're for us. Listen, the best spouse in the world cannot always be for you. It's just not possible. The best parents, the best friends, the best kids, the best grandkids, the best pastors, the best politicians, they cannot be for you all the time. It's not possible. We're human. We're sinful. But God is for you all the time. He, he can't stop. Courtney Doctor goes on to say this. If you're waiting on something, remember that ultimately it's the Lord you're waiting on. Not, not just for him to do something, you're waiting for him. If your hope is set on getting what you want, then you stand the chance of being deeply disappointed, even disillusioned. But... If we hope in the one who is utterly good, completely for us, whose word is sure, whose ways are perfect, then that hope will never disappoint. So when the trials come and you're called to wait and be patient, wait well, 
by anchoring your hope in the one whose promises are sure and whose character never fails. We live in a culture where there's very little character that's not failing. Just a lot of character fails. But the character of God cannot fail. It's not possible. So we wait well for him. We wait with him. We wait in him. We wait well with the Lord. And what we do while we wait is we pray and we keep soaking up the character of God. We keep trying to find more of who he is and why he can be trusted. And why can God be trusted besides the fact that his character never fails? Well, because he loved you and he sent Jesus for you. That's like enough. We can trust God because he loved us and he sent Jesus for us. The ultimate primary sacrifice was made for you by the mercy and grace of God. You can trust him. So we wait and we pray and we wait and we act. And then one more picture of how we wait. We wait and we be still. I don't know if that's grammatically right, but we're still. We're still. Somebody might say, ah, isn't that the same thing? Isn't waiting and being still the exact same thing? Not necessarily. Psalm 46, verse 10 says this, Be still and know that I am God. That, that's action, okay? You are being still. It's something you're doing. And you are knowing the Lord. That, that's active. You're, you're sitting still right now, but you're listening. You're, you're in act. Well, hopefully you're listening. You know. um, but, but you know, you, you're listening and you're thinking and, and your mind is going and your heart is going. You know, we, we're in activity all the time as human beings. But as believers, that activity needs to be marked with knowing the Lord, waiting for the Lord, seeking the Lord, acting for the Lord, even if we're actually sitting still. John Piper says this, if God says to be still, then leave it all in his hands, trusting his supernatural involvement in the situation. I don't mean laziness or shirking of duty. That's important. Sitting still doesn't mean laziness. This is what he says. I mean that when you are most prepared, most capable, most primed for battle, and think that most hangs on you, God may say, stay home, be quiet, pray, and watch me act. Now, some of you are thinking, hey, I'm cool with that, staying at home. I wanted to binge watch some soap operas on HGTV, want to play a little Fortnite, so I'm good. I'm going to stay home, and I'm just going to wait on God, and I'm fine. Others of you hear that and go, oh, no, I'm, I'm not fine with that. No, I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm prepared. I'm, I'm ready to roll. <laughs> staying at home sounds like stupid, lazy sin. No, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Jenny Ortland is a, another wife and mom and grandmom and women's ministry leader. She wrote this, Looking back now, I wish an older lady had sat me down and told me most of life is waiting. <laughs> That's very true. Most of life is waiting. Learn to wait in hope, not fear. And then she says this, You see, I grew up believing a lie. A lie I carried with me into adulthood. What's the lie? She tells us. 
I believed that happiness would be mine when my dreams finally came true. And so I worked hard, really, really hard to gather around me all that my heart longed for. But then, as I found myself beginning to attain some of my desires, I started fearing I might lose them. I've got all this stuff. I've got this education. I've got this career. I've got these certificates. I've got these awards. I've got these trophies. I've got this credit score. I've got all this stuff. I've got all this stuff. I've got all this stuff. <gasps> what happens if something happens to it? We've never felt like that, right? That's never been a moment in any of our lives, right? She goes on. I feared the vulnerability of marriage, and I feared the lonesome ache of singleness. I feared the pressure of success, and I feared the shame of failure. I feared infertility, and I feared pregnancy. I feared the responsibility of raising children, and I feared the emptiness of a childless home. I feared the stress of working outside my home, and I feared the isolation of staying home full-time. I feared appearing immature, and I feared growing old. What didn't I fear? Very little. Now, before you're tempted to say, oh, well, you know, that's all a female version of fear. Listen, this past week, I have talked to plenty of men who are afraid of things, you know. Sometimes it's the man in the mirror, you know. Afraid of success, afraid of failure, afraid of pressure, afraid of finances, afraid of, of moving, afraid of staying still, afraid of being home, afraid of being at work, afraid of a hurricane, afraid of, of not being prepared, on and on and on. We all have fears, about lots of different things, and those fears can drive us. Fears in a thousand different things. So what do we do with our fear of failure? What do we do with our impatience? What do we do with our unwillingness to trust the Lord and wait on the Lord, but rather to dispose of Him far too quickly? What, what do we do with that? Turn back to the psalmist, Psalm 43, verse 5. Why are you in despair? Why are you afraid? Why are you mad? Why are you angry? Why are you edgy? Why are you bittery? Bittery, bittery? Why are you bitter? <laughs> Why are you so impatient with everything that's happening around you? What, what, what is it? Why are you so wrapped up? And then it goes on. Why are you in despair, O oh my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God. Three of the most powerful words for your life this week. Hope in God. Jenny goes on to say this. Hope is a choice. In all the choices of life, hope is a choice. So when we are choosing to wait on the Lord, we are choosing hope. That's what we do. And if we choose to dispose of God, if we choose to randomly think about God for a few minutes or a couple of hours on Sunday, but for the rest part, do the life the way our parents and our grandparents and we have learned how to do life, if that's our functionality, then what we do is we take hope and we toss it in the trash. When we choose to dispose of God, we are disposing of There's a story told about a lady whose car was stalled in traffic. She got out and 
lifted the hood, didn't see anything obvious going on that she could tell, but man, the guy behind her was just laying on his horn. I mean, just nonstop, over and over and over again. Finally, she went back there and she said, sir, I, I really don't know what's wrong with my car, but if you would like to go take a look under the hood, I'll be happy to stay here and keep blowing your horn for you. Listen, we're all going to be tempted to do this this week, okay? We are, because most of us have been tempted to do it this past week. So let me just encourage us. Don't blow your horn at the Lord. He's not stuck in traffic. He's not stalled. He is good. His ways are perfect. His love is perfect. So, So choose to wait on him. Choose to wait for him. Choose to wait in him. Choose to wait with him. Why? Because he is for you. He's for you. The God of the universe is for you. That's why we keep preaching the gospel to ourselves. We keep reminding ourselves, wait a minute. Jesus loved me and gave himself up for me. And if that's true, then I can wait and I can pray and I can act and I can watch because God is for me. He is for you.